All right, I have a show favorite with me today. I have Colonel Douglas McGregor. We're going to be going over several important topics such as Prigozhin, are we heading towards World War III, how are top political uh, people from D.C. being tricked by pranksters, and much more. Colonel McGregor, thank you so much for coming on today's show. Sure, happy to be here. Thank you. So this week uh, in the news, former Russian President Medvedev said NATO is moving the world towards World War III as they ramp up the type of weapons that are that are being sent to Ukraine. Just yesterday, former President Donald Trump asked his constituents, why is President Biden moving us closer and closer to World War III versus seeking peace? Uh, is there any truth to what these former presidents are worried about, or are these just excellent talking points when it comes to re-election? No, I'm afraid <clears throat> there's more to it than talking points. Uh, the talking points are on the other side. Uh, they're very concerned, and there's a reason to be concerned. If we just pause for a second and look at this meeting in Vilnius, I think there are plenty of reasons for concern. Uh, the British and the French, for reasons that make no sense to me, have now promised long-range cruise missiles to Zelensky. These are missiles that will enable Zelensky and his cronies to strike targets in Russia, which is something we said we would not do. <clears throat> now, why is that important? I mean, if nothing else came out of this meeting, this would be critical. It's important because Zelensky's desperate. This war has been lost. The Russians are sitting down there very comfortably waiting for the, for the word to do something. And that, that's a, that's a sore point inside Russia right now. People would like to get this war over with. And they, <clears throat> they say they're willing to accept the casualties required to get the job done. Putin is still in the wait mode. He wanted to see what would happen in Vilnius. He has reservations. We can talk about that, about what should happen next. But the bottom line is if you're Zelensky and you know you've lost, you know that if the Russians push it, you've got nothing to stop them and someone delivers cruise missiles to you, what are you going to do with those cruise missiles? Well, you're going to launch them at whatever you can in Russia designed to provoke a response in the hopes that you can drag the United States especially and the rest of NATO into a war with Russia. I mean, that, that's a simple fact of the matter. Now, he was told you're not going to join NATO this year, but we're going to reduce it to a one-step process and presumably whenever the war ends, well, then everything changes and we'll bring you in. Well, that remains to be seen. But the problem is that giving this man and his government those weapons is an invitation to disaster. Now, beyond that, you have the Poles and the Lithuanians who have been talking about a joint <clears throat> intervention into Western Europe. I mean, there are, excuse me, Western Ukraine. Their argument is, uh, we'll go into Western Ukraine, we'll establish some sort of buffer zone, uh, we're not afraid of the Russians, and by the way, uh, we don't care whether or not NATO supports us. Uh, well, you know, that's, that's another red flag. First of all, anybody who is a member of NATO who sends forces into Western Ukraine is going to be regarded as part of NATO. <laughs> Just because the Poles and Ukrainians or Poles and Lithuanians say, oh, no, this is just us. It's not going to rescue them. The Russians will destroy them. 
but it, it could precipitate or trigger the massive offensive that is being held back by Putin, just as the cruise missiles could. And then, of course, you have the last gasp on the part of Biden to try and expand this feeble and crumbling NATO alliance by bringing in Sweden, which makes no sense. If you're a Swede, I haven't figured out why they want to join the sinking ship, but that's effectively what they're doing. They're stepping onto a ship that's sinking. NATO is the equivalent of the Titanic. It's already hit an iceberg. The iceberg is called Ukraine, but we are making, we're making every effort to keep up appearances. You keep up appearances by dragging in Sweden. So you turn around to Turkey, uh, the, the state that you said you would not give F-16s to, and uh, suddenly you tell the Turks, well, you can have F-16s if you'll support Sweden's entry into the alliance. <clears throat> well, if you're an Israeli right now, uh, you look at this delivery of more expensive technology into the hands of Mr. Erdogan, who is clearly not your friend, and you wonder what this is going to lead to down the line. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we seem to be pulling out all the stops to try and rescue this thing. We can't. There's no easy solution. It's effectively over in Ukraine. But the question is, when we say over, what does over mean? Does it mean a negotiated solution? We've said no. Does it mean war? We've said, no, we really don't want a war, but we're going to give these people cruise missiles that can strike Russia, and we're going to continue to deliver aid in other forms to the Ukrainians. So the Russian sits back, and the Russian says, well, inflation in Russia is at about 2%. The Russian economy is growing at 2% right now, infinitely better than the situation anywhere in Western Europe. The Russians are very comfortable with where their economy is. They're doing a land office business with China and dozens of other countries and India. They, they have no serious economic problem whatsoever. On the contrary, they're, they're very healthy. And they're now talking about this new currency that will emerge. It will be pegged to gold. And of course, for those of us that live in the world of fiat currency, gold is like, you know, garlic to a vampire. Uh, we don't want it. Uh, it's the last thing on the earth that we want because gold is real money, as Alistair uh, McLeod likes to say. No ifs, ands, or buts. And we think that 40 countries are joining Russia, India, China, Brazil, and South Africa already. That they may add another 40 countries. Very shortly, it'll be the United States or North America with Canada and Europe. And how many people in Europe are going to sit still and wait for the gold-pegged currency to overwhelm them? We don't know. But the issue, though, is could this still lead to a major war between the United States and, and uh, Russia? And the answer is yes, because we don't have control of what's going to happen inside NATO. How do we stop the Poles and the Lithuanians for doing something stupid. How do we control what Zelensky does with British and French cruise missiles? The answer is we don't. And since we don't control those things, and we're facing our own set of problems at home, we're watching France melt down, the Dutch government just fell, the Bulgarians have said we'll be neutral under any circumstances of what you do, Hungary doesn't support the business with Ukraine, we would just go down the list, it's endless, and our problems are endless. The border is open. Illegal immigration, illegal human trafficking continues at an horrendous rate. I mean, it's, it's catastrophic what we face here at home. Yet there's no sense of this. And then we are led ostensibly by this enfeebled person uh, who is 80 years old and has trouble finding his way off the stage. So who's really in charge? I, I don't think it's President Biden. Who's running the government? 
it's back to this question of who really controls everything in Washington and the United States. Well, I think it's a combination of wealthy oligarchs, big donors to the left, Wall Street, but clearly the American people don't have much to say about any of it. And you know, as well as I do, if you go on and look at mainstream media, there's no mention of any possibility, any real conflict with Russia. People continue every day. Oh, don't worry. The stock market isn't crashed yet. You know, the economy is bad, but it's getting better. No. Uh, so just, you know, what was it that Bush said? Go to the mall and shop. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the message that comes from Washington. And I think it's a very dangerous one because we are much closer to danger than we have been in decades when it comes to war with Russia. Well, thank you for that. These countries that are getting ready to hand over these, these long distance missiles, uh, are they under the belief that Ukraine is not going to use them mm-hmm. to fire into Moscow because Every other weapon they've given them that that might reach, they've they've tried to use it, including drones and 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 other uh, you know weapons. To me, this seems very dangerous. Like handing a child a weapon and then the adult leaves the room, saying, "Well, we'll just trust that the child won't fire the weapon in the wrong direction." Are are they just operating under hope? Well, you're you're striking the salient target out there. This is the real question, because I can tell you that behind the scenes, the Germans want this whole thing to end, as do most of the Europeans. They don't want this perpetual war going on in Ukraine. Their economy is in total ruins. The country's being deindustrialized. Germany is going to be pasteurized. Then they're overwhelmed by millions of Muslims from North Africa and the Middle East that they don't want in their country. I mean, let's be frank. We can we can pretend otherwise, but those are the facts. The same thing that's happening in France could happen in Germany. There's already some evidence of it breaking out. So I don't think that the the Germans want to see Russia destroyed and dismembered, <clears throat> which is the real uh, Wall Street, London banking, Washington, London government uh, cabal goal and objective: bring down Putin, bring down the government dismember Russia, strip it of its resources. That's not going to happen. And they know that. So if they're not signing on for that, the question is, why are they doing something stupid on the scale that you're suggesting? Because I think they continue to drink the Kool-Aid, which is, well, you know, uh, the Ukrainians could still win. No, they can't. Well, you know, the, the Russians haven't done anything yet. Well, they haven't done much, that's true, but that doesn't mean they can't and they won't. It's a, it's a, it's a trap, I think. Your, your politicians never really want to be pregnant and bring the child to a term. They always want to be a little bit pregnant because they never know when they want to abort. And as soon as things get really, really bad, they'll abort. That's what's going on in Europe. Uh, I just don't know how much longer those governments will last. I'm surprised that Schultz is still there. His approval ratings are worse than Biden's. They have a parliamentary regime. They can have a no-confidence vote and replace him and put in a new government. But for whatever reason, it hasn't happened. I still think a lot of that has to do with this sort of lingering hope and wish that they can remain a vassal of the United States without the consequences of subordinating themselves to us. And the consequences of subordinating themselves to us militarily 
politically and financially is the disaster in Ukraine, which could get a lot worse. Wow. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier, I don't know the exact phrase you said, but you said we could address that if you want. Had something to do with Putin's reservations or go yeah. ahead. Tell me what that, tell me what you're thinking there. Well, I think <clears throat> you mentioned Purgosian, uh, Russia's answer to reality TV. Uh, I'm not terribly interested in wasting a lot of time talking about him personally, but we ought to look carefully at what this event meant, at least in the minds of Russians and why it continues to sort of reverberate, I think, in Moscow. Prigozhin wanted to save his Wagner group, which has been under pressure from Gerasimov and the uh, Minister of Defense, Shogu, for a long time, ever since the war began, because technically Wagner is a private military organization employed by the Russian government. It's not supposed to operate inside Russia. It's essentially the equivalent of the French Foreign Legion. French Foreign Legion does not operate normally inside metropolitan France. It's supposed to be beyond French borders. That could change, incidentally, if things in France grow worse, which I think they may. But right now, that's that's the law. And so he said, look, don't dismember Wagner. Don't throw it out of business. It's a great organization. That was number one. He is wildly popular inside Russia. His organization is wildly popular because they are seen as Russian patriots who are fighting every day to defend Mother Russia. And his rhetoric has been very popular because he's a sort of mafia-like tough guy that Russians like. Somebody who stands there and says, why are we not crushing Ukrainians now? Why are we waiting? We're tired of waiting. We want to launch. We want to end this war. Of course, that's the Russian people. They want to end the war. They're incensed. They don't understand why we've continued or the Russians have continued to tolerate the abuse that the Ukrainians meet out. I mean, just today, Ukrainian forces launched more artillery rounds in Donetsk. This is a city in the so-called breakaway republics. They shell it all the time, and they're not shelling any military targets. They're killing civilians. And people say they must be crushed. This must stop. Well, Putin agrees with them. But Putin has a different calculus, and his calculus is what we don't want is NATO intervention on the ground in western Ukraine, because if that happens, it's going to be very difficult for us to avoid a direct military confrontation with NATO, especially the United States. And I think that's the crux of the issue for him. He said, we're going to sit here, we're going to demonstrate that we are invincible, There's nothing the Ukrainians can do. We're going to continue to build our force. They're up to 750,000 now. The plan is to go to about 1.2 million men. They're continuing to quietly mobilize and also to contract for new soldiers inside the Russian military. Shoigu has just been on a tour. Uh, He may still be on it. I know he's been on it for the last couple of days, visiting all of the factories and production facilities for armaments, uniforms, equipment, everything that you need to fight a war from, you know, complex missile parts, uh, you know, to cruise missiles, to drones, whatever. And everything in that country is running basically seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 a year. There's no danger of them running out of anything. And at the same time, you've now had the president of the United States admit to the world, well, you know, we've run out of ammunition. So we're sending cluster munitions, not not new ones that are good, 
This is old ammunition. And if you listen to that and you're on the Russian side, the Russians are saying, well, let, let's get this over with. What are they going to do? See, the problem for Putin is he doesn't want that confrontation and he doesn't want to answer that question. What are they going to do? Because he does not want a nuclear confrontation. Yeah, my, my understanding from, you know, looking at this from many different angles and sources is that Putin is kind of caught between needing to look like a great military leader that doesn't butcher his neighbors. He also needs to look like someone who is resolving an issue, but still keeping the door open for Russia to do business with Europe. Is that a fair? Uh, no, I, I think that's an accurate depiction, <clears throat> but his audience is not not Europe and the United States. His audience is the rest of the world. And it's very important to him what people in Asia think, what people in the Indian subcontinent think, what people in Africa think, what people in the Middle East think. That's another reason for moving cautiously, deliberately, and slowly, and avoiding a major confrontation if it can be done. But all of this could change at a moment's notice, and that's the problem. Uh, suddenly, dumb things can happen. The cruise missiles arrive, and they show up landing not only in Moscow, but perhaps in Rostov. Uh, perhaps Belgrad, other major cities in Russia, who knows, because that's all the Ukrainians can really do with them at this point. And then, of course, there's the danger of the Polish-Lithuanian card being played, and these people foolishly stumble into western Ukraine. Now, the Poles are supposedly up to about 300,000 troops, but they cannot adequately arm all of them. In other words, they don't have the modern equipment for more than about 130,000, 140,000. Polish public opinion is fragile right now. Uh, it was 52% favor confrontation with Russia a few months ago. I'm told it's now in the 40s. Not that governments uh, necessarily follow public opinion all the time, but in this case, I think it's a concern inside the Polish government, and they have elections coming up. Then you also have the problem in Lithuania, and the Lithuanians and the Poles, they have an agenda, a territorial one that goes back hundreds of years. They're trying to regain territory in the region that was once theirs. Now, I, I understand that. That happens all the time, all the way around the world. But there are ways to approach that. You know that Ukraine is weak. And if you're trying to pick up a portion of what is today called Ukraine that is historically Polish and Lithuanian, well, then you can do it, but not as a member of NATO. And I told some Polish colleagues, if this is really what you want to pursue, you need to get out of NATO. And then you need to fly to Moscow and talk to Putin. Now, why would I say that? Because they may be surprised what Putin is prepared to do. Putin said five years ago, after he'd given a speech in St. Petersburg to a group of journalists, he said, we know that the Ukrainians in the West want nothing to do with us. They're Ukrainians. We understand that. We don't want to rule them. And then he turned around. He said, you know, they'd probably be happier with the Poles. In other words, these people know the history. Everybody knows everybody else in the region. We don't know anything, by the way. I mean, we, we bring to every discussion the same thing, arrogance and ignorance. But the people who live there actually know the, know the situation. Unfortunately, it's another wag the dog theory. We want to wag the American dog. So the Polish tale, the Lithuanian tale, they want desperately to drag us in. Then you have the fools in London that think they sit in splendid isolation on that island 
and that island could suddenly become a death trap for them if they continue down the road they're headed with Russia. We don't have the forces ready to fight. That's a huge problem. You just heard we don't have any more ammunition left. What are we going to do if we have to fight on the conventional level? This all brings you back to the issue of nuclear weapons. Russians will not use those. People that want to use nuclear weapons want to use them because they're losing, because they're weak. Guess who that description fits? Us. Yeah. So walk walk my uh, audience through, let's say that uh, Zelensky or even a rogue general orders one of these long-range missiles into Moscow. Now, we're not talking about drones. Uh, we're, we're talking about a direct hit on Moscow, an attempt on Putin. What happens then? I, I have to imagine Russia, it's like kicking a hornet's nest if, if they start sending missiles in versus drones. Well, I think that's a good metaphor. Is it? First of all, you don't send a single cruise missile to strike anything. You know, if you, if you really want to hit something on the other side that's of any real importance to the Russians, whether it's symbolic or military, and in most cases, I think it's probably going to be symbolic, then you fire 30 or 40 cruise missiles. Because your assumption is that the Russian integrated air defenses will probably shoot half or more of that down. In which case, you're trying to get strikes with maybe a handful of those missiles. If those strikes occur, yes, it's kicking into a hornet's nest because at that point, uh, President Putin gets, goes on television and says, we've been attacked directly. We cannot tolerate this. So I have directed our armed forces to advance and put an end to this regime. I think that would happen. Now, that's not difficult to do. I think the Russians can do it. How fast would that occur? I would certainly think that by mid-September, Militarily on the ground in Ukraine, it would be over. Whether or not they'd cross the river and go straight into Kiev is, is unknown. <laughs> One would hope in the event that something like that happened, that more sober-minded people in Washington would stand up and say, wait a minute, we didn't sign on for this. But I haven't heard very many sober-minded people in Washington. When I listen to Chuck Schumer or Lindsey Graham, the Uniparty is of one voice. We want to destroy Russia without any understanding whatsoever what the hell they're talking about, without understanding the consequences for the United States. They pushed this thing too far. They'll find out that we've got problems all over the world long before we go to nuclear weapons. The Russians can escalate horizontally. What do we do when they create enormous problems for us in Mexico and the Caribbean basin? I mean, right now we have a government that refuses to defend our border and is inviting millions of people into the country we don't know, haven't vetted, who are capable of all sorts of things, not the least of which is criminality and, and child trafficking and so forth. What happens if suddenly that changes into something much worse? What if the drug cartels cut deals with the Russians and the Chinese and others, and suddenly all the weapons that we would rather not have on our borders show up? In other words, imagine the Cuban Missile Crisis on steroids with no way whatsoever to diffuse it, no way to get it out of the region. Once it goes in in great numbers, we're in trouble. What about the Korean Peninsula? What if the Russians say to their friend uh, Kim in uh, North Korea, well, we would like you to fire some more missiles across Japan. Uh, we'd like you to strike a target uh, 
just offshore in the uh, North Pacific, or perhaps uh, launch some missiles in the direction of Guam. Who knows? And then, of course, the Chinese who don't want a war, they're horrified at the prospect. And that's one of the reasons they're supporting the Russians. They don't want this thing to spread and involve them. So they want the Russians to be successful. What do they do? Are they going to sit quietly? They'll probably sit there and say, well, we'll sink too if we don't do something. You know, in this sense, it's uncomfortably familiar historically because it looks a lot like August 1914, where people at the top who on normal, under normal conditions had brains and common sense make the foolish assumption that, well, we might as well fight. Uh, it's gone too far, but if we do, it won't be that bad. Remember the old statement that Kaiser made to his troops, and he was probably the single most anti-war candidate of everybody involved in World War I. He absolutely did not want that. And what did he say? You'll be home by the time the leaves have fallen. Well, that was very reassuring, but he didn't understand warfare, and people are People don't understand warfare now in Ukraine. They're looking at this. They don't get it. I mean, I've listened to so many retired generals talk about Ukraine as though this is 1942. They keep dwelling on this thing called combined arms, which was a German innovation, integrating air, artillery, tanks, infantry. That's fine. That's not what we're watching anymore. We're watching the ability to link spaced-based assets, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and strike forces, all strike forces, from a mortar, an automatic mortar, all the way up to tactical ballistic missiles and beyond. The ability to see everything all the time. You don't hide on this battlefield. It's very difficult to do so, which means that if you're going to go full stop into this war, you have to disable satellites. So you get into a war in space. We haven't even begun to talk about that. And then there's the war at sea. You know, what about our forces sitting in, in Poland? How do you reinforce them? You know, you can't. What if the Russians decide to embargo Western Europe? How do they get food? What happens? You know, we, about 40% of our attack submarines, which are enormously important, critical to our strategic defense, defense are not in working order. They're in repair. You know, we haven't even talked about the ballistic missile submarines, and I don't want to. But my point is, our submarine fleet is critical. It's not in good shape. That's probably the single most powerful and critical strategic asset we own. We're not ready for anything. By the way, in 1914, neither were the forces that went to the field. Only only 40%, uh, no, excuse me. 40% of German forces in 1914 had field uniforms. That meant that 60% of all German forces only had dress uniforms in 1914. Does that sound like everybody's ready to go to war? You know, if we go to Russia, it's even worse. You know, the French with their red trousers and, and blue coats, gleaming bayonets all went to war in 1914 with cavalry charges. That's what we're talking about right now. We're facing an entirely different kind of warfare we're not coming to terms with it yeah have you seen uh the netflix show all is quiet on the western front uh you mean the new version of it yeah of the old novel no oh it, it it's it starts off with somebody being killed at war his uniform is taken washed 
the bullet holes are sewn up and then they hand it to a new soldier who's smiling and ready to go to war for his country. And he says, Hey, there's somebody's name in here. And they rip out the tag and they said, probably didn't fit him anymore. Here you go, son. Uh, you know, that's, it makes me think of what, what you were just saying.